This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Do you realize we're selling you complete 700, 800 card sets? Complete sets from the factory for $10 a set? $10 a set? $10 and 10 cents a set is what we're doing it. <laughs> you look at the number. Think of that, folks. That's unreal. Including the 87 Fleer. There's not another set here that books less than $10. There's not a set here. Not anywhere here. The 88 Fleer is like 30 something dollars. Every one of them is $15, $20, $25 a set. Every set. We're at $10 a set. This is wholesale, folks. Good evening, I'm Hugh Downs. And I'm Barbara Walters, and this is 2020. From ABC News, around the world and into your home, the stories that touch your life. This is 2020. Rest in peace, Don West and Barbara Walters. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Following takes place on January 3rd, 1983, from 10:30 a.m. to 12:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Events occur in real time. Episode 337, submission number 125. January 3rd, 1983, in-game shows. Well, guys, today, the day that this episode is being released, is the 40th anniversary of really what I think is maybe one of the biggest dates in game show history. It goes up there with June 20th of 1980 when we lost... Hollywood Squares, and we lost Chain Reaction, and we lost the new High Rollers, and they were all replaced by the David Letterman Show. We talked about that, though, back in June of 2020. Go back in the archives and listen to it. But I think this takes a different twist on it. This isn't three game shows, three really good game shows getting canceled for David Letterman in clearly a spot that maybe his show shouldn't have been in to begin with. It shouldn't have been a daytime show. He clearly had a nighttime audience. This was sort of the renaissance of the the game show, if you will. Maybe not necessarily the rebirth, but I think when you look at game shows, I think this date clearly brought game shows into a more contemporary era in terms of music, in terms of pacing, in terms of technology used, And at least with three of the things we're going to talk about, I think that holds very true. And as Greg noted at the start of the episode, we're going to go through in chronological order. And Greg said everything happens between 10.30 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. So we're going to start at 10.30 a.m., the debut of the new version of Sale of the Century. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Sale of the Century because this episode by no means is about Sale of the Century, but it deserves some inclusion because, hey, it's part of this big day, this new lineup, and obviously it lasted over six years. It had a legacy. 
But really, this initial show in this game show block really did set forth this new era of game shows. When you hear that bombastic theme, when you look at the glitz on the set and all the prizes and all the money that's being handed out or on offer and the set, this isn't like some show from the late 70s or early 80s. I mean, if you compare like blockbusters to this. Blockbusters would be boring compared to this. It's two different eras. And the crazy thing is blockbusters was canceled less than a year earlier. Yeah, and I'm going back, because this is Sale of the Century, I'm going back to that intro with the drum beat and the, like, the and the trumpets going, and then Jay Stewart's all like, today on America's biggest bargain sale, da-da-da-da-da-da, and then, I don't know if they would have done, well, they probably would have done it, but that suitcase that was chroma keyed in, with all the money in it and the $100,000, you knew this was going to be big. That was later, but still, even without that, again, you have this very gold-slash-tan-slash-beige-colored set with the lights, and you've got the glitz, you've got the the models uh, wearing the different outfits, the, the furs or what have you. I mean, it didn't look like the price is right. It looked like it was taken to a new level than where the price is right was at. But also just again, everything on offer, the money, the cars, the boats, the trips, the furs, the furniture, everything just brought it to a bigger scale, I think. And the one thing I think we should mention about the first probably 13 weeks of sale of the century, the game isn't vastly different. It didn't change much over time. They did add the 60 second speed round near the end of the show, but pretty much the game is the same between 1983 and 1989. And also obviously they added instant cash uh, near the end of the run. But the one thing that I think we need to mention is the first hostess. And we've talked about her because she was on match game Hollywood squares for a week. Sally Julian. And if you've ever seen the premiere episode, with all due respect to Sally Julian, because she's not with us any longer, her outfit, she looked like an astronaut. I'm sorry. And maybe that has to do with this whole sort of, I don't want to say neo-futuristic way the the game show looked. It, It didn't look like your father's show from even like a year or two earlier. That's why I said it's like a new era. And I wonder if that's why she wore this outfit on this first show, because it's the future. It's a new game show. It's a new type of game show, or at least a a, a high stakes game show. And it sort of ushered in that era with like pressure luck with the big prizes and and uh, some of the other game shows from the 80s. But uh, this definitely deserved to mention just because it is part of history on this day on on January 3rd of 1983. But also it's a big deal sale of the century because it's Jim Perry's return to NBC. Yeah, because he was on card sharks for three years and they'd have to wait like another 15 months for him to return to sale of the century. But he was doing definition over in Canada, so things were good for him. And he also did one other pilot 
around that time, but uh, between uh, 1981 and 1983. And it's going to be on the schedule in summer of 2024. And if you know what the title is and you know what just got announced recently for summer of 2024. Put two and two together. You can easily get it. Yes. Let's just say Helen Hunt is not going to be involved in this. Well, we can also say that this show we're going to cover in December 2024, just like a, a, a tornado, it blows. Uh, I like this. Thank you very much. Now, I did too, but I, I think the uh, the gimmick doesn't get very far. But we'll talk about that in about 18 months. Yeah, we're getting, now, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's now jump a little bit ahead in time. So we watched Sale of the Century. It lasted from 10.30 to 11. And then at 11, well, we can watch Wheel of Fortune. Nothing wrong with Wheel of Fortune. Perfectly good show. But we like watching the perennial Price is Right. So we flip over to CBS. And this is probably about 11.07, 11.08, 11.10 a.m., the second pricing game of the day, a new pricing game is introduced. And not just any new pricing game is introduced. The pricing game is introduced. When you think of the prices right, you probably think of this pricing game. It's the debut of Plinko. And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Plinko, but some interesting stuff the reveal of Plinko, we've seen it change over the years. You know, currently they have George Gray saying, you're going to play Plinko, and they raise the curtain, and there's the Plinko board, and then you have the $50,000 uh, CJI'd on the screen, and you have the Plinko chips dropping whatnot. Yeah, that's cool. And also, if we go back even further, talking about, again, 1983 till – the current era, you had that sign that was sometimes at the back of the audience, and sometimes it was on one of the turntables, and they would rotate, you're about to play Plinko, and then the uh, sort of act like a vertical blind where they sort of turn the blinds over and it showed the $25,000, and the camera would be zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, zooming in. Yep. But early on, they didn't do that. They brought from the ceiling, from the, the rafters, on the display where they'd show, like, watches or jewelry or whatnot. And what was on this display was a mirror ball, almost like a disco ball, a little disco ball. And around it, they had uh, orbiting a display that said $25,000 uh, on some sort of, like, loose site or, or plastic rotating around it. Very futuristic, maybe sort of following this sort of theme we have here with Sale of the Century bringing in a new era of game shows. Maybe that's what Plinko is doing here is sort of ushering in this new era in Prices Rights 11th year saying, hey, we're not just this show that gives away, you know, furniture or TVs or grandfather clocks. We're kind of like trying to stay ahead of the game and we're going to give away $25,000, which really what game show in 1983 would have given away at one chance? At one opportunity, $25,000. Pyramid? Well, I was actually thinking few, and that was four years earlier. But still, 
How many game shows offer $25,000 in one fell swoop on a show? Very few. I mean, Wheel of Fortune, if you're very lucky and very good, but highly doubtful. Card Sharks, again, if you're highly lucky. Few. Pyramid, like, uh, like Chico said. But that's kind of sort of the list at this point. Press your luck. But again, pressure luck is going to happen later in 1983. So, yeah, there's not many shows that you can win this huge amount on one try. And we know Sale of the Century, you can win $100,000, but that's not in one try. you got to win eight, nine, ten games to conquer and that. not all of it is in cash, mind you. Oh, yeah, this is all currency, all cash. Straight cash, homie. Oh, yeah. That's the real money. That's the kind of money I like. That's that paper money, man. It's that Virgil breadstick money. Oh, yeah. Meat sauce. Meat (laughs) sauce, baby. So, again, the reveal is more or less the the main reason we talk about it. Again, for the sake of completeness, we need to mention Plinko. And the game itself, the initial player, she ended up winning – three Plinko chips on top of the one that she got. And she got 500, then 500, then 500. And then she hit the big one, $5,000, $6,500. And that's like a decent car at that point. Just to put some perspective into this. $6,500 is a pretty nice car back in 1983. Well, now that Price is Right debuted its new game and they spun the wheel they played a few more games hey nbc has this new show that's premiering at 11:30, so i'm gonna bypass the second half of price is right we're gonna go over to nbc and we're gonna talk about hitman wait we're gonna be talking about brett hort no oh you know i thought i could have been the host of the nbc's hitman i would have made a better host than peter tamork that piece of crap Hitman aired on the NBC television network from January 3rd, 1983 to April 1st, 1983 for 65 episodes. One half hour from now, you'll know enough about the making of The Wizard of Oz and Jeans to win $10,000 in cash if you were a contestant on Hitman. is true. We're going to make you and our contestants here instant experts on two subjects. You see, this is a quiz show, but before the questions start, everybody, you and our players today will hear all the answers. So guys, I really think that Hitman sort of epitomized the new age, uh, if you will, of, of game shows, taking the leap from being more traditional to more flashy, more technology-based. Because in case you don't know, Hitman, a lot of its inspiration was from video games. Yes, it was. I was just about to say, it's like those little things, they basically look like the bastard child to Pac-Man and Space Invaders. That's exactly what they look like, Space Invaders. 
Yeah, and that was by design. And the whole set is basically, it looks like a pair of opposite-facing video game cabinets. They do, yes. And even they have like a little marquee on top. Uh, it doesn't say the name of the show. It shows uh, the characters you know, chasing each other or whatnot. But it does look exactly like a video game cabinet. Absolutely. So you hear about this. Oh, it's uh, supposed to look like a video game. So initially, I think the, the first uh, thing that goes through people's minds is, oh, it's a game show based on video games. I don't know how to break it to you, but this is just a giant memory test. So there's no video game action. There's video game looking characters. But this is just like rote memorization. What happens, and uh, as you heard in the open, there's two topics every day. You have three contestants and a champion. But we'll start with the three contestants first because they take part in round one where they watch one of the mini movies, three to five minute movie about a certain topic. And the champion sees the same thing as well, because even though they don't play, if they win the end game, which we'll get to later, obviously, involves some of the stuff from both topics of the day. So they see a movie, again, three, four minutes in length, about a certain topic. Could be about an actor, could be about a movie, could be about a fad, it could be about anything just about. And the object is you want to get five answers correct. The way the board is set up, each player behind them had a column, and every time they got a question right, their hitman moved up one space. So they would actually race to a finish line at the top of the video game cabinet, at the top of the uh, of the area the contestants uh, sit in. And the first person to get to the finish line, which, again, five answers, wins $300. Second place wins $200. Third place leaves. They leave empty-handed. If the person answered incorrectly on any question, they'd be locked out for the next question, and the other two people would uh, participate in that question. So after the first round, the two people who placed, the, the two leftover contestants, they would go to another round with the champion, and this is where it gets maybe not necessarily a little confusing, but it's sort of creative if you think about it. So the second movie shown... And again, all three participating players see the movie. And now each contestant battles the champion on an individual basis. The two challengers never play each other. It's always one challenger versus the champion. Now, what happens is the contestant who came in first, who won the $300, they got four hitmen. The contestant that came in second, they got three hitmen. And the champion, just to make everything even, got a total of seven hitmen. The person who ended up in first place in round one got the opportunity to play first or second. And then at that point, the question's read. And again, it's just the challenger versus the champion. If the champion is correct, 
the champion knocks one of the hitmen from the contestant's uh, stash of hitmen. And then control goes to the other non-champion player. If the challenger is correct, play sticks with them and the champion loses a hitman. So this basically goes back and forth, back and forth, as long as the champion doesn't lose all their hitmen. Play continues like that, going back and forth, back and forth, until one of the challenges is eliminated. It could be the champion, but we'll say one of the challenges because this is, again, where it gets a little confusing. If a challenger loses all their hitmen, they're out of the game. And then play sticks with just the champion versus the remaining challenger. Whoever loses their last hitman in this competition between champion and the remaining challenger, whoever loses their last hitman is eliminated, and the person who knocked out that last hitman becomes the champion. Confused? You won't be after this episode <laughs> of Soap. Hey, you know, Rod Roddy announced both shows. Just something yep. to think about. A little yes. parallel yep. there. Yeah. So it might be easier if you've never seen it to actually see an episode. And there's probably, I'd say, 10 episodes online. There's plenty of episodes. But getting back to the game. So the champion goes to the triple crown round. And this is a combination of not just memory, but luck plays a huge part of the game here. Oh, and I should add the champion doesn't win anything for winning the game. They just win the chance to go to the triple crown round. There is a board with eight columns on it. And you're going to have a certain amount of hitmen in each column. They randomize the board. And one of the columns has one hitman. Two of the columns have two hitmen. Two of the columns have three hitmen. Two of the columns have four hitmen. And then one of the columns has five hitmen. And you're asked questions about either subject from that day. So, again, if you're the champion, you got to pay attention to what happened in the first round. Because if you win, you're going to be asked about it in the triple crown round. So the contestant, the champion, their back is facing the board. Because obviously if they were looking at the board, it would make it really easy. And the board is randomized in place. And what they do, there's eight columns. They call out a column number. And if they get a question right, they put a hitman in that column. And that continues as long as they get questions right. So in order to claim a column, you have to get however many number of hitmen there are in that column correct in a row. I have a question. So it could. Oh, question from Chico. Yeah, you said there was like a column from one hitman to five hitmen. Do the questions get harder with uh, the less amount of hitmen you need to fill in the column, or is it completely random? It's essentially completely random. Question difficulty doesn't really get harder because, again, you're given everything in advance. You've seen the videos, so the answers are located within the movie. Ah. Now, Now, maybe... They get a little difficult when they throw in some obscure numbers, you know, possibly like how many children did this person have or how many movies did this person uh, direct in their career or something like that. But every answer is located within the movies that they had previously seen. 
think about the writing there. You could make it really easy. You could be a deceptive. You could even write multiple questions based on the same statement. Yeah, if you had a statement about an actor being on some movie with a certain celebrity or a certain animal or or during a certain year, well, you could ask that question about the year or the movie or the co-star or whatever. So you could realistically, in one fact, create four or five or six different questions. And obviously, since there's a finite amount of information there that you're given in the movie – you definitely see that in the course of the show where, okay, we saw this in the first round where they talked about, yeah, the, 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 uh, the name of the uh, movie that this person was in, but then they might turn around and say, blankety blank starred in this movie in what year? So, okay, you don't want to answer, you know, on the waterfront, let's say, now you want to answer 1953 or whatever year on the waterfront was released. So, yeah, so th there's a little bit of creativity there in the writing where you can go left or right or straight or essentially maybe do a U-turn. But getting back to the, uh, the Triple Crown round. So you have to get as many questions in a row to fill up that column. So again, it could be one, could be two, three, four, five. Obviously, you want nice short columns. You uh, ultimately want to get the one and the two twos, and you're done. You get five questions, you win the round. What you don't want to happen is to get the four, the four, and the five, because now that's 13 questions, and trying to get 13 questions right in 60 seconds is no easy task. So again, luck plays a big factor here. But the rewards, if you clear one column, so even if you get that one column with one hitman in one question, you can win $1,000. You could also get the column with five hitmen and clear that column out and win $1,000. Again, luck is a big, big factor here. So you get $1,000 for one column, get two columns, $2,000. If you can get three columns, that's $10,000. So again, you could do it in as few as five questions. You could take 13 questions and win the $10,000. It's very random, and luck has a huge part to do with it. Play continues for a total of 60 seconds, or if all the columns are used up, so that's Hitman, the game itself, but there's some things that I think we need to note about this uh, show. Specifically, uh, the final episode, for two reasons. One, game show announcer Randy West was a contestant on the final episode, but also two, this aired right before the start of the final segment. If you would like to be a contestant on Hitman, forget it. And now back to Peter Tamarkin. Thank you, Rod. That, of course, would be the announcer Rod Roddy. And trailing off would be Peter Tamarkin. This would actually be Peter Tamarkin's first gig as a game show host. That's right, it was. And we've actually mentioned back in the condo episode when he played the Doug Llewellyn type on the People's Court ripoff, we believe that was recorded between the end of Hitman and the start of Pressure Luck, and we speculated 
that possibly Peter Tamarkin got the press your luck job in part because of Kondo. Maybe not just because of Kondo, but it certainly didn't help having his uh, face out there. Yeah, that's right. He was on Kondo, wasn't he? That's right. I remember talking about that. Yeah, Citizens Court, the People's Court parody in that episode. Oh, but hold on a second. I got to interrupt something. I got an announcement to make. This is CNN Breaking News. Yeah, apparently, because we're taping this as SmackDown's going on on Fox, and Kevin Owens just won a tag team match with an invisible man. Like, that's hard? I can't believe it. If Chris Griffin can win a tag team match with an invisible man, then... Wait a minute, that wasn't a tag team match. It was just Chris Griffin wrestling himself. Never mind. Did the Invisible Man have an eagle? No, sadly he didn't. Eagly was not part of the team? He was there in spirit. Eagly doesn't know directions. He got lost going to the arena. (laughs) Anyhow. So, yeah. Hitman, really, uh, again, technology-wise, I mean, this was something to behold. The, the music, it wasn't video gamey, but again, it was more upbeat. It, it was a good complement to Sail the Century with its very bombastic theme. It was a, a very upbeat theme. The problem is, I think people don't like necessarily doing memory tests. But also, it was up against the second half hour of The Price is Right. Oh, yeah, that would do it. That, that, that'll do it. And uh, some fun little facts. First, this will never be rerun. Now, I don't know if it could hypothetically be released on home video. Because when the show was done, the rights to the music, the, the background and incidental music you'd hear during the movies was purchased for one use only. So that sort of gets rid of any rerun possibilities. You want to say something? I was just thinking to myself, not just the music, but also the footage made large, right? Well, the footage, I think, was primarily photo-based. There wasn't video per se. So, you know, press photos, as long as you have access to, like, Getty Images, I think you're fine there. I'm not any sort of legal expert on on that type of stuff, but the music itself, I know for a fact, prohibited the uh, the, the uh, show from being rerun. Not not the theme music, just the music used in the background uh, of the movies. And do you know who Brandon Tartikoff originally wanted to host Hitman? You'll never guess. I know it because you asked me this like 10 years ago. Okay. Well, let's see if Chico knows. Oh, God. You're going to put me on the spot like that. Well, if Greg knows, I want to just want to see if you can get this. Randy West. (laughs) No, not Randy West. Greg, you want to fill in the gaps here? Jay Wolpert. He wanted the creator of the show to host. Yes. Yes. Which would not be completely unheard of, by the way. Well, Brandon Tartikoff thought he had the chops, 
Jay Wolpert did run-throughs for Hitman. Obviously, this is in the creation process. Had to be sold to NBC. So, yeah, he, he uh, obviously pitched this to Brandon Tartikoff and other people at NBC. Th- there were two factors that hurt Jay. One, Brandon Tartikoff wanted him to lose like 20 or 30 pounds. Also, I think his bald head didn't help matters. I think he wanted more hair up there. I know. I'm sorry, Chico. I know you're patting your head there. I'm, I'm sorry. But also, Jay even told – he told me this. I'm, I'm not even going to lie. This is something uh, that he mentioned when we had uh, a lunch together back in 2001. He said that – and again, this may be a little un-PC. Sorry about it. Bald Jewish men don't sell in Iowa. Brandon Tartikoff actually said that. No, Jay Wolpert actually said that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's why I said the the bald head and also uh, Brandon Tartikoff wanting to lose 20 or 30 pounds. That sort of precluded him from getting the job. Could he have been a good host? Who knows? Plus also, just again, talking with him 20 plus years ago, I don't think he necessarily wanted to be in front of the camera. He clearly did his best work behind the camera. And where could we start? I mean, we talked about few. We haven't talked about Blackout yet, but we'll talk about Blackout. We could talk about the pricing games he created for The Price is Right. Cliffhangers! He did create cliffhangers, yes. He created cliffhangers. Yes. There goes Fritz. Oh, no. Oh, no. I can't even get back from that. Oh, Craig. But, yeah, so Hitman, 13 weeks. Nobody likes memory tests. It went up against Price is Right. It's almost fitting that it ended on April Fool's Day of 1983 because, seriously – with all due respect to Jay Wolpert, since we just lost him literally a year ago today, as you listen to this, on January 3rd, 2022, Jay Wolpert was the, the crown prince of goofiness on television, I think, on game shows. So it's sort of fitting that not just Hitman, but also Blackout got canceled on April Fool's Day, or at least their last episode aired on April Fool's Day. Well, We've gone up to the 11.30 to noon half hour. Now let's go to noon to 12.30. So this is our last half hour in our little 24-ish type of way we're presenting this episode. We've saved the best for last. Yes, we have. Well, maybe not the best show, but the content that we're going to get from this, oh yeah, this is the best for last. Hey. What do you get when you take a car, two ladies, seven gentlemen, and Betty White together? One hell of an orgy. Orgy. (laughs) Or just men. It's just men. Just Men aired on the NBC television network also from January 3rd of 1983 to April 1st of 1983. Also, for 65 episodes. It's the most unusual game show and talk. 
Miss Jolene Hulick, a cosmetologist from Irvine, California. This is Miss Tammy Grimaldo, a switchboard operator from Thousand Oaks, California. And from the greatest American hero, Mike Post. Nightclub, comic, Charlie Callis. Football, great, Bubba Smith. From Tip, Paul Lake. Shields and Yardell, Robert Shields, and Betty, why are we all here? Because it's just men. <laughs> many females have hosted a game show before just men, and many females have hosted a game show since. But Betty White was the first to take home an Emmy for it. True story. And it was for this show, which had two ladies, one returning champion, competing to basically probe the minds of a man for fun and profit. The panel was asked a yes or no question. Two of the panel would answer yes. The champion would have to question the panel for one minute using topic-related questions prepared in advance, and then each contestant would select a celebrity she thought would have answered yes. The celebrity revealed his answer by opening a folder and placing it in front of him. Each panelist had a key, and if the celebrity answered yes, the contestant won his key. Okay, so you have seven guys, two girls, and a bunch of keys. This is slowly turning into an orgy. Orgy. That celebrity was eliminated from further play. Contestants took turns asking questions for the remaining celebrities until two keys had been claimed. That was round one. In round two, the panel was asked another yes or no question, to which at least two of the remaining celebrities had answered no. It basically plays the same as round one, except for you're looking for a celebrity who has answered no. If you find that celebrity, you win their key, and that celebrity was eliminated for further play. Round three has the catch-up round. Contestants take turns asking one of the three remaining celebrities questions in round three that predicted whether the celebrity said yes or no. The contestant won the celebrity's key if they guessed correctly, along with her choice of one of her opponent's keys. If she guessed wrong, she lost both that key and the second key to the other player. The contestant who wins all seven keys, or the contestant who wins the most keys at the end of the round, wins the game, and goes on to the bonus round. The loser would usually get a consolation prize for each key they've won. If they have one key, they get one prize. In the bonus rounds, the champion was allowed to choose one of the keys that she won the game with, and she was allowed to choose a second if she won all seven. The men attached to the keys walked to the car, and the champion tried to start the engine. If the car started, the champion won the car and retired undefeated. If not, 
They want a consolation prize, and there is the prove out with the correct key. The champion then used that key to open the trunk inside of which was a prop that hinted at the identity of the consolation prize. I'm not even going to go into what the props were. Now, the champion is allowed to choose one additional key for each subsequent win. So if she made it to seven wins without winning the car, she would automatically get all seven keys and wouldn't even have to play the bonus rounds. they just give her the car. So it sort of played out like uh, Dreamhouse meets the endgame of 1986's Hollywood Squares. In fact, interestingly enough, the person who produced 1986's Hollywood Squares was the person who created this show, Rick Rosner. Of course, Rick Rosner, known for creating, among other things, chips. Yes. And of course, we talked about him in Caesar's Challenge. Yes. But this was basically a 1980s version of Hater Quigley's The Celebrity Game. Hey, we should also talk about the music. Yes. Because you know who did the music on this? I do know who did the music on this. Oh, who did the music on this? I don't know. Stormy Sachs, who you'd know as the person who wrote the theme song to Hollywood Squares. The one hosted by... I like how when you video I do it. I put my fist like... Davidson! Like, you, you, no, in order to say it correctly, you have to bring out your inner Super Saiyan, basically. That's how Shadow gets his powers. He just goes deep down and goes, John Davidson! And does he even do that flex on camera? Where he's in arms like, John Davidson! No, he doesn't the, do that. He has to do the Hulk flex. Like, but, but, oh! but that would be great if he did. Did the Hulk flex. Oh! So yeah, Stormy Sex did the music to that, and you can kind of sort of get that feeling when you listen to it. It does have a Hollywood Squares uh, feel from mid-80s, and uh, even uh, Caesar's Challenge, because I believe he did the Caesar's Challenge music too. So you can make a lot of parallels there. You, you hear a lot of similarities. As much as I love talking about this show, I think the one thing we need to do, we need to talk about the celebrities who are on this show. Because this might be the meat and potatoes of just men right here talking about who they got for this show. I want to see this. All right. So week one, the premiere week. You have Steve Sachs, second baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers at the time. Leif Garrett, Josh Taylor, Tim Reed, David Hasselhoff starring on some new show called Knight Rider, Dick Van Patten, and they let Jeff Altman in? After they put Pink Jeff Lady Altman back in the building? What? Yeah, after Pink Lady and Jeff, they let him on any NBC show? Well, he was on Letterman a lot, but still, it was on this first week. Guys, I got a good game I want to play with each week's panel. It's going to be a game of who is this week's, who are three men who have never been in my kitchen? So for week one, I have Dick Van Patten, Tim Reed, and Steve Sachs. 
who are three people who have never been in my kitchen. Yes, that's for week one. I think that applies to everybody on this show. None of these people have ever been in my kitchen. Well, I know they haven't, but yeah. Well, All week right. two. Yeah, week two. The names get better. Listen to this. Tony Danza. That's right, because the final season of Taxi would have been on NBC this year. That's right. Yeah, I was going to say, it would be another year or so until Who's the Boss came around. And, of course, we all know who the boss was. Mona. No, the second panelist was George Brett. (laughs) Oh, wait, hold on a second. Did he have some hemorrhoid cream with him? Uh, Nobody had plenty of pine tar. Well, that would be later this year. That would be late. Well, uh, I know it's later that year, but. That's the joke. And then Jack Jones. The lowboat. David Mason. Fernando Allende. He would have been uh, wrapping up uh, Flamingo Road at this time. John Eric Hexham. And Brant Von Hoffman. Okay. Week twos who are three men have never been in my kitchen. Tony Danza, George Brett, and Jack Jones. Oh. Oh, I was hoping you'd say John Eric Hexham. Well, we talked about him on Voyagers. Yeah. Yep. Voyagers would be on the air at this time. All right. Week three. Michael Warren. Robert Pine. John Matuzak, Sloth Love Chunk, Martin Cove, aka Sensei John Crease. Yeah, a couple years before, but yeah. Doug Sheehan, Kelly Monteith, and some little comedian you may have heard of. We talked about him. We didn't talk about him that long ago on Battle Stars. Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal with just men? Okay, the who are three men that have never been in my kitchen for week three. Hold on, hold on. I'm, wait, wait, no. Oh, well, I didn't want you to, to say it out loud because I was going to make a prediction. Okay. <laughs> Are you going to write it down? Hold uh, on, yeah, hold me, on. Hold on, I got to do yeah, this thing. One guessing game. Yeah, yeah the, the, this is our new guessing game. We're going to predict who uh, are the three people that weren't in your kitchen that week. All right, let me get a piece of paper. I got pen. I got all right. John. Okay. Okay. So, oh, no, 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 no. Write it down. Don't, don't, don't say it. Don't okay. Say it. I'm, I'm writing it. I'm writing it. I'm writing All it. All right. right. So three people that weren't in your kitchen. Okay. I know this is just thrilling uh, podcast uh, listening for you people at home. All right. I got mine. Okay. Three. I got mine. Okay. I am locked in. So am I. Okay. Chica, what is your? My three are John Matuzic. Martin Cove and Jerry Seinfeld. Damn it, Chico! I'm not even kidding. Those are the three that I have written down. What? Are you kidding me? You look, t- look at the screen. Look at the screen. Check. Well, you probably yep, can't the, see it. Those are mine. Okay, guys. Okay. Yeah, you we were tied. close. You were close, but no cigar. I got John Matuzak and Martin Cove. Robert Pine was the third. Oh, oh, of course. Zach Morris's daddy, of course. I would always take Chris Pine's dad as one of the three who have never been my Chris. Kid. Oh, sorry. Well, well, you did play Zach Morris's daddy in Good Morning, Miss Bliss. So. Yeah. 
All right. Let's see if we can repeat this uh, success. Me and Chico playing mind readers here on week four. Okay. Michael Dudikoff. Jimmy Walker, who's apparently there for the money. Money. Vince Ferragamo. Will Schreiner. F. Lee Bailey. Jeff Altman again. And Ted McGinley. Yeah, because Ted McGinley would be on Happy Days at this time. Yeah. All right. Three people that aren't in Greg's uh, kitchen. All right. Locked. All right. Uh... All right. Mine's locked, too. Okay. Mike, you're going to go first. Ted McGinley, Vince Farragamo, and F. Lee Bailey. Chico. I also had F. Lee Bailey and Vince Farragamo, but I went with Jimmy Walker. Okay, here's the three. Jimmy Walker, Ted McGinley, and Will Schreiner. Oh. oh. So close yet so far. So close. All right, so week five, we're up to Sam J. Jones. That's right. Flash Gordon, baby. Flash Gordon, quarterback, New York Jets. And you know what? He'd still be a better quarterback than Zach Wilson. A tackling dummy would be a better quarterback than Zach Wilson. We also have Bruce Penhall. Mr. T, sucker. Brantz Bernard, Fred Travelina, Randy Hamilton, and Tommy Lasorda. Okay, you ready for the three men that have never been in my kitchen for this week? Oh, hold on. Hold, I'm making a last second change. I, I, I've got uh, second thoughts on this. All right. Hold on. Okay. Got it. Locked. Okay. Chico. I have Tommy Lasorda, Sam Jones, and T. I, again, I have the same three, but my last second change, I had originally Fred Travelina, but changed it to Sam Jones. Ding, 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 ding. Mom, we hit the jackpot. All right. Oh, hey. week six. This is a week good six. lineup. Oh, oh, this this is going to be a tough one to predict, I think. We have Steve Sachs again. Pat Sajak, Fred Willard, Stephen Ford, Torian Black, who we just mentioned in the obits uh, in the year in review, Roger Menashe, and Hervé Villachez. Locked. All right, hold on. Uh, okay, also, there are two Steves or Stevens here, so please note that. Now, Steve oh. Sachs can be just Steve, and Stephen Ford can just be Steven. Okay. Okay, I'm locked in. Okay. Mike, what are your three? Hervey Villages, Steve Sachs, and Torian Black. Chico. I had those three, but I changed Torian Black to Fred Willard. Okay, here are the three. Pat, Fred Willard, and Hervé Villages. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Hervé Villages. I, okay. I knew you were going to say that's I knew it. I got, though. And, I knew as, it. and as we all know from Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, Hervé, if you know anything about Hervé, he had something for the ladies, if you know what I mean. But also, remember... Like 10, 11 years ago, Fred Willard had that little uh, incident, you remember? That little incident? Yes. You think Hervey gave him some tips? 
He might have. Oh, my. I'm talking about masturbation. Yes, yes. We know. We know. This is going to be hard. This one's going to be a challenging one, week seven, yes. Lou Richards, Jay Johnson, Wayne Northrup, Tom Riley, David Naughton, Darrow Igus uh, from Fridays, and Charlie Zimmer. And interestingly enough, I think this is the only week where there are no pro athletes. Locked. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I need to pick one more. This is a tough one. Okay, I don't like the last choice I have here, but I, I can't think of anybody else that he'd pick. I, I know I am wrong, by the way. Well, what do you have? How wrong are you? I have David Naughton, Charlie Zimmer, and Wayne Northrup. Well, I've got David Naughton as well, and I have Jay Johnson and uh, Darrow Igus. You're right about Jay and David, Mike. You missed Charlie Zimmer. I had Charlie Zimmer. See, I don't even know who Charlie Zimmer is. Okay. Well, his uh, name is Charlie Zimmer. Zimmer! No! Now, you see, I thought you were going to do a Don Zimmer reference there, but okay. Okay, so the next week, week eight, you have Ken Berry, Peter Tamarkin, Jay Johnstone, Tom Dreesen, Martin Hewitt, Tom Sullivan, and Tim Reed. Okay, I'm locked and loaded. I know what three Greg picked. All right, this is going to be a toughie. Really? I thought this was easy. Okay. I got my three. Okay, go ahead, Chico. I've got Peter Tamarkin, Jay Johnstone, and Tim Reed. Okay. Well, I agree with him on Peter Tamarkin and Tim Reed, but I went Tom Dreesen. Mike, you got it correct. Oh, yeah. It was tough between Tom Dreesen and Ken Berry, but I got to be honest. Ken Berry and Peter Tamarkin on the same show in the same week. That is incredible. I knew you'd pick Tom Dreesen because all the Letterman appearances. All right, we're going to week nine. Steve Sachs again. How desperate was Steve Sachs that he appeared on three different weeks? I know why, because as we all know, from The Simpsons, Steve Sachs is responsible for all those unsolved murders in New York City. You know right. what? Steve Sachs might be a borderline Hall of Famer for the show. How many times have we talked about Steve Sachs? Not enough, apparently. All right. So, yeah, Steve Sachs. And we've got Bruce Penhall, Terrence Knox, Gene Rayburn, Greg Marks, Dusty Baker, and Byron Allen. And I think this is the only week where we had two athletes. And actually, I oh, Greg, I've got you nailed to a T here. I know exactly who you picked. Okay. And also, Dusty Baker, we should mention, he won the World Series in uh, this past year, 2022. Yes, with the Houston Astros. So, so very timely. Obviously, this was during his playing days. Okay, I'm locked and loaded. Okay. Locked. Right. Chico, what are your three? They're right here. Steve Sachs, Gene Rayburn, and Dusty Baker. Two athletes and somebody with a dirty mind. Okay, Mike. I have the exact same three. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's Gene, Dusty, and Byron Allen. I crossed out Byron Allen and put Dusty Baker. I was sure you would have picked Dusty Baker. 
All right, we're going to week 10. Only four more rounds of this, people. Oh, wait, hold on. I got a oh. joke. Yeah? You know, whenever Steve Sachs and Dusty Baker were probably talking about their baseball swing technique to Gene Rayburn, you know <laughs> what the response would be? You're gorgeous. No, it'd be right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh we're on week 10 now yeah. it is david brenner steve day so you got the announcer pulling double duty here josh taylor don sutton timothy patrick murphy gary marshall and dirk benedict i'm locked in i i i don't know if i'm gonna get all three but i got a good feeling about this Unlocked. Okay. Mike, what are your three? David Brenner, Don Sutton, and Gary Marshall. Okay, Chico. I have David Brenner, Gary Marshall, and Dirk Benedict. Chico, you are dead on the money. You are not man. Not man. Why no love for Don Sutton? I appreciate Don Sutton. By the way, I got my brother for Christmas an autographed Don Sutton card from like year 04 that I got at a card show for like 10 bucks. He's a Hall of Famer and he's dead and you got him for $10? Yeah. That's like downright theft. Wow. Yeah. Okay, week 11. This is going to be Yeah, week 11. Oh, this is another good one. Robert Mandan, Mike Adamley, Bill Myers, Roger Menashe, Leon Isaac Kennedy, Doug Sheehan, and Fred Travelina. Okay. Locked. Chica, what is your three? Robert Mandan, Mike Adamley, and Fred Travelina. Damn it, Chico. You know, if this, like I said, was Mind Readers or Newlywood game, we'd have every single prize. All three. Robert Mandan, Fred uh, Travelina, Mike Adamley. Yes! You got it! That was a pretty easy week, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty easy week, but I will say... Mike Adamley's stint in WWE is a future entry. And dear <laughs> God, that's going to be an epic hilarity ensues episode. One of my favorite moments of the time Mike Adamley was at WWE was one of the time he was about to be announced as the Raw General Manager by Shane McMahon. And he got up before, like two minutes before the announcement giving away that he was the general manager. You're making me crazy, Kofi. Oh, jeez. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That deserved a Susan. Yeah, okay, man. week 12, there's things I think we need to talk about here. Oh, well, I think Chico knows what's coming, and I know I Greg do. definitely knows what's coming, but this this just blew my mind when I saw this earlier. Gavin McLeod, Shecky Green, Tony Danza, Mark Singer, Richard Dean Anderson, Reggie Theus, and Brant Von Hoffman. Locked. Oh, man. I've got a tough decision here. I'm between two people. Oh, mercy. I'm going to... I'm doing a last-second change. I hope I don't regret this. Okay, I'm locked. Chico. Tony Danza... Reggie Theus and Gavin McLeod. I had all three. I had Gavin McLeod, Tony Danza, Reggie Theus. 
But at the last second, I said I was flip-flopping between two people. I crossed out Gavin McLeod, and I went with Richard Dean Anderson. Okay, here we go. You got Reggie Theus, Richard Dean Anderson, but guys, the third, Mork Singer. Shut up! You shut yourself He's up right now. He's the Beastmaster. <laughs> I'm glad I switched from Gavin McLeod to Richard Dean Anderson. I, I had an instinct there. But also, talking about Reggie Theus, and I shared this with Greg, and I shared this with Chico earlier today, doing a little bit of research, because I was curious about how Reggie Theus would have fit this in the schedule, because he's an NBA player. And at this point, he would have been playing with the Chicago Bulls. So I actually went on basketball reference to see if the Chicago Bulls, at this time frame in March of 1983, were playing any games uh, against the Lakers. Because uh, the Clippers would have still been in San Diego at this point. Uh, and I don't even know if he would have gone from L.A. to San Diego and then back up to L.A. So I just did a little research on that. So the Chicago Bulls, they played games on the 11th and 12th of March in 1983. They played in San Diego on the 11th, and they played in L.A. at uh, Inglewood on the 12th. So I'm going to assume that this week of shows probably recorded on the 10th of March in 1983 because there's no way – Reggie could have recorded a week of shows and then gone to play a basketball game that day. No way at all. Just inconceivable. But also, doing a little bit of research, Reggie Theus had a pretty long career in the NBA. Started with the Bulls, I believe, about 1978. And then uh, later in 83 or early 84, he got traded to the Kansas City Kings at that point before they moved to Sacramento. And then in 1988, he got traded from Sacramento to Atlanta. And he was traded, I believe, for the first round pick that the Atlanta Hawks had, uh, who turned out to be Ricky Barry. But Reggie Theus and a third round pick went to uh, Atlanta for that first round pick. Ricky Barry, unfortunately, uh, he only lasted a year. Uh, He unfortunately committed suicide uh, after his rookie year. But the third round pick is somebody we've talked about on this show numerous times and not because he was a basketball player. El Gigante. I want the bell. I want your bell. So yes, Reggie Theus and a third round pick who turned out to be El Gigante were traded to the Atlanta Hawks. That's incredible. But hold on a second. Let's look at the box scores from these two games, because I want to know about the box score from these games. Okay, obviously this was back when the Bulls sucked and the Clippers were good. Not saying that the Clippers aren't good now, they're really good right now. The Clippers weren't even good in 1983. There's a reason why Donald Sterling moved them to L.A. Okay. Starting for the Bulls, he had Dave Corzine, Rod Higgins, Reggie Theus, Dave Greenwood, and Quentin Daly. So basically, Reggie Theus and four other guys. But Dave Corzine had 35 points for the Bulls. Reggie had 30. Some guy named Mark Overding had 22 points off the bench for the Bulls. 
Let me look up his career real fast. Big O. Yeah, he had one season with the Bulls. And then, oh, he went to Kansas City. So I'm guessing he might have gone with uh, Reggie to the Kings. Yeah. And let me see who was on the Clippers at this point. Uh, On the Clippers would be Tom Chambers, Lionel Hollins, Michael Brooks, Terry Cummings, and Al Wood. Tom Chambers, 37 points, future son. But Craig Hodges, 16 points off the bench. And Terry Cummings is not a bad player. He played a number of years for the Bucks back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's right. One thing I noted when I looked at the box score, uh, again, doing research for this show, there were a total of two three-pointers taken in the entire game. Two in the entire game, both by the Clippers, both missed. And both by former Cleveland Cavaliers, if you can believe it. Rod Higgins and Mike Bratz. Well, this would be back when the three-point shot was a relatively new thing, and not many people would have gone for it. I mean, I can understand if they put up maybe like eight between the two teams, you know, four aside. I understand that. But two the entire game. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, Steph Curry hits two three-point shots in like 20 seconds. Okay, the Bulls box score... Reggie had 17 points, Dave Greenwood 27, Quentin Daly 26, Dave Porzine 19, Rod Higgins 16. Now let's look at the Lakers story. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, just a few guys. You may have heard of them. Uh, Magic Johnson, Norm Nixon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jamal Wilkes, and Kurt Rambis. And James Worthy off the bench with 16. Yeah, he would have been the number one overall pick in 82. Michael Cooper, six points off the bench. Norm Nixon, I'm surprised, led all scores with 27. Kareem, 22. Magic, 18. Jamal. Man, wait, 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 wait. Look, look at that. Magic got a triple-double that game. Oh, I didn't yes, see Yes, he did. He had 18 points, 14 assists, 12 rebounds. Yes. Last week, messed around and got a triple-double. Freaking brothers every way like MJ. Michael Jordan could have met Magic Johnson, had an honest-to-God case for both. Oh, Kurt Rambis only had six points. I guess he was busy being Superman that day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so now we go to, I believe this is the last week. Yes. So we have Eric Brown, Charlie (laughs) Callis, Paul Linke, Mike Post, Bubba Smith, Tom Riley, and Robert Shields. No Yarnell. I am locked. Okay, Mike, you locked. I'm struggling again with one of them. Oh, I may regret this, but I'm going to lock it in. All right. Mike, what are your three? Okay, Charlie Callis, Bubba Smith. And I was flip-flopping between Eric Brown and Robert Shields, but I don't think you're a Shields and Yarnell person, so I went with Eric Brown. All right, Chico. I also had Charlie Callis and Bubba Smith, but I went off the board with Mike Post. Chico, you win! Yeah! <laughs> of course I'm going to go with the guy who made the A-Team theme. Come on. 
Now, you know, if I wasn't even thinking that way, I, I was thinking a lot of these people were like actors or athletes. And I, really, in my mind, I didn't think Mike Post. I thought, okay, Shields and Yarnell was like more mid to late 70s. And Eric Brown, he was on that first uh, couple of seasons of Mama's Family before it went to syndication. I figured you're a Mama's Family type of guy. I'm sorry. We've already established two weeks ago that he wasn't, okay? Well, excuse me. I, that's probably the uh, day that I was going to get Vicki Lawrence's autograph down in Pittsburgh. Hey, did you guys know I went down to Pittsburgh to get Vicki Lawrence's autograph? Yes, yes, we did. Oh, uh, I think that's going to be the new show lore. You know, just like Greg, hey, yeah, I, uh, I didn't do this until episode 300, but I like wings. Well, you know what? <laughs> Since episode, like, 332, I met Vicki Lawrence in Pittsburgh that one time. And Chico went to the episode of Maury, which involved Chicken Tetrazzini. I did. He did. I did. So, this show, Just Men, had two things going against it. One, it was on at noon, opposite Family Feud. And in some markets, opposite Tattletales. And two, the show itself was, and now I'm quoting Tom Shales of the Washington Post, the litmus test for people who think the TV show can make them physically ill hasn't been invented. Betty White, a talented light comedian, is terribly demeaned by this role, which has her hobbing about from man to man as they utter answers or remarks that are supposedly uproarious. So yeah, the fact that it was a really bad show pretty much doomed this show. The fact that it was on at noon, doubly so. Well, guys, I think that wraps up our little journey in the time machine back to... January 3rd, 1983. Oh, no, we're not done yet, guys, because we're going to play Retro eBay Prices Right. What? Huh? I knew you were going to say that. We'll just play the regular music, but I'll explain it in a moment. All right, so what I mean by retro eBay prices right, this is an item I bought off of eBay back in 2004, I believe. So that's yeah. why it's retro eBay prices right. It's not a current item. This is something I bought close to 20 years ago off of eBay. Okay, so this makes a little more sense now when I say retro eBay prices yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, so we have that cleared up. What you are bidding on is a 35 millimeter slide for a promotional image from Hitman. And this is like one of the art cards they'd use in uh, commercial breaks, either going to commercial or from commercial, or if there were any sort of technical difficulties. This is a 35 millimeter slide. This is not the, the card itself. This is the image uh, from the 35 millimeter slide, which I purchased off of eBay in 2004, okay? 
you understand the, the ground rules and parameters here? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I will start with Chico, and we're going to do just dollars. Chico, how much would you bid for this 35 millimeter slide of a promotional image for Hitman, which may or may not have been used on television? I'm going to go with $20. Okay, $20. Greg? Going to give a little bit of leeway. $24. Greg, you gave me a little bit of a heart attack there. Because the amount of money that I paid for this item, $25. Oh! I really thought you were going to nail it, Greg. I really thought you were going to nail it. Chico well, was very close, too, though. And just a little bit of background information. First, my high bid on this was going to be $100. I was the only person who bid on it. So I got it for $25. That was the opening bid. But also, I should note who the seller was. Somebody that you may have heard of who has a direct tie to Hitman. No, not Jay Wolpert. Fred Westbrook. Oh, yeah, I remember him. God rest his soul. Yeah, uh, and I saw Greg's face there. His mouth just opened when I said that. Yeah, Fred Westbrook sold some of his stuff on eBay. And in case you don't know, Fred Westbrook was, in his later years, like the agent to the uh, to all the game show hosts. He was like Tom Kennedy's agent, uh, agent for many other game show hosts and personalities and announcers. And uh, he was one of the three authors of the game show encyclopedias. So I bought this uh, off of one of his auctions back in uh, 2004. And then actually in 2006, originally uh, at the Game Show Congress, which I've mentioned plenty of times that Chico and I attended back in 2006, Peter Tamarkin was supposed to be at the uh, What's My Line live show, but he had to cancel just about at the last minute or so. I had the photo of this slide, and actually uh, Fred Westbrook created a like 8x10 photo of this, and I wanted to get Peter Tamarkin to sign it, and uh, we all unfortunately, I think, know what happened to Peter later on that year uh, doing some uh, charity work. But Fred Westbrook was at the Game Show Congress, and I just casually said, hey, Mr. Westbrook, yeah, here, here's this photo that I bought off of you last year. I was going to get Peter Tamarkin to sign it. And he was just like totally amazed. What are the odds that somebody that he sold something to on eBay was at this conference in Burbank? I, I think it was just a, a really crazy uh, moment, a crazy experience. But yeah, that was Fred Westbrook's for about the first, I guess, 20 years since Hitman aired. And it's been mine for just about the last 20 years since that uh, day, again, 2004-ish. Nice little backstory there. I thought you guys would enjoy that. Well, you know what? That's going to be a great piece to have in the museum. Oh, I'm already donating to the museum. You, absolutely. That's definitely part of the museum. Oh, yeah. That's going to go right in the entranceway. Once you see the McCoy Stevenson statue, you come in, you're greeted by that picture of Hitman. Oh, no. I thought you were talking about the slide. I had the idea of... McLean Stevenson statue, him holding the slide out like this in between his fingers, and we put the slide there for everybody to see. We could do both. We we could take the photo that could greet people as they come in the museum, and as they go past the statue, here's the slide where that image came from. 
Thank you, McLean. All right. I think now we can return to 2023 and formally close up the first episode of the new year. Yep. We've taken the time machine back to 1983, exactly 40 years ago, this day, found four interesting premieres. One, of course, would go on to become game show lore. Another would just be an icon of the genre that persists to this day. But the other two, just men and Hitman, they would just be things on TV. But they'd be beloved things on TV. Oh, they would be beloved. You had your first exposure to a national audience for Peter Tamarkin, and you also had your first exposure of Betty White as an MC. And uh, she may not have done all that well, maybe in the grand scheme of things, but still, she was one of the first uh, female MCs of a national game show, and she got an Emmy for it. Hey, guys, did I hear you say Peter Tamarkin? Yes, Whammy. Yeah. Hey, Happy New Year. Oh, hi, Whammy. How did you celebrate the new year? Oh, guys, I got to talk because the IRS is coming after me for back taxes over the last 45 years. They want to get taxes from me and my dad, the devil. Oh, well, that sucks. How am I going to come up with $17 million by the 15th of January? You owe $17.5 million? Well, do you know how much me and my dad have taken over the years? True. And then, and then interest and penalties? $17 million. For what? A Nissan Sentra. I don't care about Nissan Sentras. Well, just remember, Whammy, you still have all those, like, old CED players that you stole back in 1984. That I could sell for $3 a piece. Well, so what? I'm going to be going to prison, guys. Oh, oh. I'm not going to last two days in there. So next time you see me, don't be surprised if I'm all tatted up. And I've got a boyfriend named Bubba. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm not meant for the big house. So please, if you're going to help me out, you know, go give me money on PayPal or Venmo or Zelle. Or go to my GoFundMe page. Disclaimer, please do not send money to the whammy. Shut up! Send me money! <laughs> I gotta pay these taxes. Disclaimer again, do not send the whammy any money. It's okay, all your fault, Mike. Hey, I pay my taxes, you little punk. <laughs> Somebody spring me out of jail. Maybe I'll be back in future episodes. Wow! Please remember the whammy when you give this holiday <laughs> season. Get lost, will ya? Go. I'm going to die in prison. I'm so sorry, whammy. You know, he has Elizabeth Banks' number. Why does he just call her? You know, maybe the whammy knows the cocaine bear. Do I have any white stuff around my nose? Oh, no, 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 no. Pablo Escobar. 
Jeez. I'm going to be Pablo Whammy Bear. Doesn't work. Now, episode 338, submission number 2313. Hey, Sprig of Trivia. Hey, Sprig of Trivia aired on Fuji TV from October 7th, 2002 to September 7th, 2006. It was translated, dubbed, and the resultant show aired on Spike TV from November 11th, 2004, to May 2005. Begin. Today on Hey Spring of Trivia, a smelly shoe contest, a backwards bicycle race, and a marathon runner who takes a bathroom break. Get ready to say hey. Welcome. Is trivia a word that you are familiar with? Trivia is defined as useless information. Why do we need such meaningless knowledge? Tonight, we'll find out on Hey, Spring of Trivia. Spring of Trivia, and now one's the spectacle, the other's just a spectacle, Taka and Yashima. This is a weird intro. Uh, this isn't even one that we can, like, you know, replicate. It's goofy. With this CG guy of the two hosts and the chairman, and, yeah, they're holding, like, uh, what is it? They're, uh, they're holding like in an Olympic arena. water. Well, no, and then they've got water coming out of their eyes and mouths. It's goofy. No, it's not goofy. It's very Japanese. Yep. Seriously, it's very Japanese. In 2002, Fuji Television, who by this moment was known primarily for exporting the Iron Chef format all over the world, entered into a different kind of panel show. One that rewarded members of the public for submitting useless information. It was called. Trivia no Izumi, or Trivia no Izumi, which translates into The Fountain of Trivia. Tats to host it would be Katsumi Taka Takahashi, who is a comedian and Tarento, and Norito Yashima, who is an actor and TV presenter. Together, not known for much of anything. The biggest credit I could find for either one of them was as the voice of Iwanbo and Cameo in the original dub of Ruroni Kenshin. But that's only because I am a big fan of Ruroni Kenshin. So on each show of Trivia no Izumi, we have a panel of five, including a regular known as Chairman Tamori. Chairman Tamori is the onstage name of Tamori, which in and of itself is the onstage name for Kazuyoshi Morita, who is one of the big three TV comedians in Japan, along with Sanma Akashia. And somebody who you would probably know, Takeshi Kitano, a.k.a. Beat Takeshi. 
he of the famous castle. Oh, that Takashi. Yes. On each episode, the five panelists would view a video segment that introduces and confirms the validity of an unusual piece of trivia. They would have up to 20 Hayes to give it. And what Hayes are is basically, uh, in, in English, it would be really or wow or oh, neat. Thank you. I was just going to say that. Oh, no, really, that's what it is. It's essentially a way of giving a thumbs up or, like Chico said, a wow or an oh, neat. Oh, cool. Every time they are astonished, they hit the button. They're allowed to hit it up to 20. So, you do the math. Any piece of trivia can receive up to 100 haze. For each hay a piece of trivia gets, the submitter will receive 100 yen, or roughly a dollar. Should it receive a perfect score of 100, the trivia submitter receives 100,000 yen, or about $1,000. In the course of the show, no piece of trivia ever got 100. The closest, and this was on an episode that aired in the U.S., was 99. And if I'm not mistaken, the trivia was 1111111111 times 1111111 equals... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And, and that got ninety-nine haze. That got ninety-nine haze. They're just amazed by anything in Japan. That's <laughs> just like basic math to me. But I know I'm not, you know, normal well, in regard. Yeah, you are a math teacher, Mike. But the thing is. I thought it's a known fact and not really an amazing piece of trivia. 11 times 11 is 121. 111 times 111 is 12321. 1111 times 1111 is 1234321. I thought that was kind of known. Well, maybe the panelists were very excited at that. Well, I can guarantee one thing, Chico. You yeah. know why I didn't get 100 Hayes? Why? Because that chairman is a stingy son of a bitch. Yes, Chairman Tamori is a stingy son of a bitch. He makes no bones about it. In fact, he will chastise a panelist for delivering too many haze on a subject. And this bears out in one of the dubbed episodes that aired in the U.S. where he says, you should save your haze for later. So yeah, we have several pieces of trivia, and in the middle of the show, some point in the show, there is a segment called Trivia Notane, or Seed of Trivia, where viewers submit hypothetical questions, and the producers and several volunteers go to great lengths to answer them, and at the end of which, 
we will have new trivia for the chairman to judge. The seed of trivia's grade is shown as a flower, with the best bit of trivia getting a full bloom. Although they could give them a 20% bloom, a 40% bloom, a 60% bloom, or an 80% bloom. Uh, some examples of this were, who is the fastest Japanese baseball mascot? Which brand of ramen contains the greatest net noodle length per package? And what form of barbecue do lions prefer the most? I'm going to jump in because there are two episodes on YouTube. And I saw both episodes. One of the episodes, their spring of trivia had to do with ice skating. And the question was, how many rotations, how many spins can an ice skater do before they get dizzy? And again, going to great lengths, they got a professional ice skater and they put her in one of those devices that just rotates. It, it just goes around and around and around. I'm sure you've seen it uh, somewhere on TV where, you know, they spin somebody 10 times and say, okay, go do this, and they're falling over the place. You know what I'm talking about, I hope. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay. So they took this professional ice skater, put her in for, I think it was 10 rotations to start, no problem. 20 rotations, no problem. 40 rotations, no problem. 100 rotations, absolutely no problem. And that was actually on day one. They actually had to break this up into two days, the second day, they actually went to her hometown or wherever she lives and brought this machinery with them and went to a high school gymnasium to perform this experiment. But now they're getting to the big numbers. 200 spins, no problem. 500 spins, absolutely flawless. And I should say the way they determined uh, if she was dizzy or not they had her run maybe a 15 or 20 foot length past the uh, the spinning chair. And it was probably maybe about two feet wide or so. So they gave her a little bit of room and, and she, she didn't fall over. Every time she just, you know, trotted over to the, uh, the goal or the end line or whatnot, 500 uh, spins did just fine. 800 spins, no problem. They maxed it at a thousand spins and they said it took roughly an hour just to do the thousand spins. So that tells you how fast it's going. It's probably going about one rotation every two to three seconds. So yeah, a thousand spins and she gets off this thing and just prances over in a straight line. Like she didn't uh, get spun at all. They did go to some very far lengths. Uh, for some of these, not just seeds of trivia, but some of this trivia. And that did get a full bloom, 100%. Yeah, I remember uh, there was one trivia that got a full bloom where they tried to uh, do, I, I don't remember what the subject of it was, but it was like 100, then 200, then 500, or something or other but i just don't remember what the subject of it was it wasn't the spinning like i just mentioned no. they did like i said 
10, 20, 40, 100. Okay. It might have been the spin. Well, again, how many episodes aired in the U.S.? Maybe, I'm guessing, 13, maybe 20 at most. So there's only a, a finite amount of material that we could have seen. At that point, it would have been two years worth of material to create like 13 or 26 episodes. There is also uh, on the other episode that's on YouTube, a seed of trivia about how long the tortoise and the hare could have conceivably run. Because we've all heard the, about the tortoise yes. and the hare, the Aesop fable. And what they actually did was they studied the sleep habits of a hare, a rabbit, over a 24-hour period and also measured its average speed and also did the same with a turtle and did a little bit of math and they determined how far the race was. It turns out it was only about like 800 feet. Oh, not much, not the, much of a race. Of, yeah, the thing of it is you need to have like a bit where the hare falls asleep. Well, I think they're assuming the hare fell asleep for the entire seven hours or however many hours a day a hare sleeps, and that the turtle took advantage during that time. Another really good uh, bit of trivia that came from this show, and this actually won, it got the most haze of any piece of trivia on that episode. The ashes of the inventor of the Frisbee was made into a Frisbee. I can believe that. As we mentioned earlier, Hayspringer Trivia went to great lengths to create trivia or determine trivia in terms of seeds of trivia. They did go to some expense, though, because I remember this from when it originally aired. They talked about diamonds, and the trivia was how diamonds are very fragile and can break under pressure of being hit by a hammer. You hear about diamonds being the strongest mineral, nothing can destroy it or nothing can cut through it, but they don't talk about how easy it is to break. So they actually, and I remember this, they took a diamond valued at $15,000 and actually just took a hammer to it and boom, and you've got diamond dust. Oh. $15,000 diamond. $15,000 diamond? What? Yeah. So they didn't just go to great lengths to discover trivia. They went to great expense to determine trivia. And also, when we say haze, going back to the haze, what it was was just like a, a button, a buzzer, and they would just smack the button down, hey, 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 hey. So that's how they determined how many hays. And you see some of the celebrities just go, when they hear the trivia, without even the basis of the trivia, they go, hey, 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 hey. So you've got some people, and again, this goes back to the chairman. You know, the chairman's saying, you know, whoa, you know, you gave it 18 hays and we haven't even talked about it yet. And the chairman, meanwhile, has given like three hays. He was real stingy. He was a stingy little codger, yes. And also at the same time, and this may be lost in translation for lack of a better description, he was very flirtatious with the ladies. But again, this also might be Spike being Spike. 
Well, in early episodes of Hey, Spring of Trivia, they make mention, they put this uh, big disclaimer, and it says, and now I'm trying to remember it, warning, the trivia on this program is real. The Japanese translation is real, and the experiments are being conducted by people with way, way, way too much time on their hands. So yes, if something seems unseemly in the dub, chances are it was unseemly in the original. Chances are Chairman Tamori was being very flirtatious with the ladies. Oh, I can believe it. But also another trivia, and this one is on YouTube, and they really, again, as I said, went to great lengths with this trivia. The trivia was there was a runner, and I'm going to guess it was a marathon, maybe like a 10K or something like that. I think it was a marathon based on the time that they showed. Uh, A marathon runner actually had to take a crap in the middle of the race. And he did. (laughs) And he still won. So what they did... I can believe that. Well, it's believable. It's believable because what they did, again, at great expense to Fuji Television, they got the runner. This is 1973 this happened. So we're now talking about 30 years later. They got the runner who was an American. They flew him to Japan where this marathon was. And he even went to the location where it happened. He said it was by a building. The building had been torn down, had been razed. But he said it was about right here. I had to relieve my bowels. I just dropped trow, did it right there. 20 seconds later, I'm back on the road. They actually brought the runner from America to Japan to confirm this trivia. Again, no expense is too little for this show, I think. Oh, and that did win the award for the day as best trivia. Uh. It It got the most haze. Oh, and we should actually talk about also the awards because oh, we, yes. talk, we, we talked about the monetary rewards the submitters would get, but there were other rewards. Yes. At the end of the show, uh, Yashima would give out the golden brain for today's most interesting trivia with the melon bread inside that looks like a brain. And that's true. He would open up the brain trophy in half, it's split open in the middle, and there'd be this melon bread, which looks like a brain, inside the trophy. Yes. And also, Taka would give out the silver brain, which would be an award for his favorite trivia. It's the same shape, but slightly smaller, and there's no melon bread inside. And they've really emphasized it that way on the show. The Silver Brain, with no melon bread inside. In later episodes, the winning trivia would get a small analog clock. Analog? In Japan? It was 2005. What do you want? Still analog, not a digital clock? They couldn't have gone down to Sony and said, hey... Give us half a dozen digital clocks so we can give them away on this show. 
And also, another thing that didn't make its way over to the U.S., because by that time the U.S. run would have ended, was a segment of the show called The Bog of Falsivia, where they take a trivia sent in by a viewer that turned out to be false and sink it in a bog. Additionally, they would say, if you use this trivia, you might be called, and then they cut to a cute girl doing something cute, a gravure artist by the name of Tamaki Ogawa, and she would just say the word Sotsuki, which is Japanese for liar. So use this trivia, you might be called a liar. Today I learned what the Japanese word for liar is. Sotsuki. I just want to see the gravure artist. Maybe I'm just a horny old man that way. Her name is Tamaki Ogawa. I'm looking. I'm looking. Oh, lie to me all day, baby. Oh, no. 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 He did not mean to say that. He did not mean to say that, guys. Tell me you did not just say that. No, no. I meant lie is and not tell the truth, not the other one. <laughs> oh, God. So the show actually ran for four years in Japan, like we said. It was a low-budget show that aired after midnight. In fact, they did air some of the more risque, some of the more after-dark material as part of the uh, package that was sent to the U.S., but with its increasing cult status, it ran on primetime after eight months on the air, which was pretty interesting, pretty cool. And a month after that happened, November 4th, 2004, Fuji announced that 26 episodes of Spring of Trivia would be adapted for broadcast in the U.S. And this was around the time that MXC and Iron Chef would be two of the most popular shows on all of cable. Of course, Iron Chef was as straight a dub as you could get. MXC was more a comic dub of Takeshi's Castle. This would take the form of the straight dub. It was slightly edited to remove any sort of reference to Japanese culture or Japanese arts and entertainment that would be completely lost on an American audience. They would have to piecemeal the resultant show with segments from other shows, which is why you will watch some episodes and they will have different panelists on each one. This was a straight dub, but they did take some sort of artistic license to make it funny. Now, here's a bit of trivia that I didn't know about it until I did the research on this show. Spike actually wanted to do a U.S. version of Spring of Trivia. Oh, I would have watched the heck out of that. In 2004, in addition to purchasing the rights to air the original Japanese series... 
Spike purchased the rights to reproduce the program and will start its own series in April using useless but interesting information to be sent in by viewers in the United States. This is from a copy of the Yomiuri Shinbun that we got from the Vietnamese Internet Archive. The producers write, the good news is that our Japanese counterparts at Fuji had already produced the essence, the brilliance, that you will see week in and week out. It was our job to make sense of it for us and for you. Like most executives who might license and produce an American version of the show, we neither spoke nor read Japanese. But we loved the food. The planned series is required to follow the original style, which Fuji TV has compiled in a standardized production manual covering everything from set design to the flow of proceedings. As for the five panelists, it requires the seating order to be 1. A big-name TV personality. 2. A younger TV personality. 3. A guest. 4. A young female celebrity. And 5. A person of culture. No exceptions allowed. Program buyers are able to produce programs on their own by following the complete manual. In Spike's case, however, one of Fuji TV's affiliated companies will be involved in the production, a Fuji official said. Selling TV programs will expand our market. This is a good chance to make the Fuji TV brand known worldwide. We will continue to promote the sale of our programs overseas. As a reminder, this is the same country and the same network and the same production house that brought the world Iron Chef. I think they know what they're doing. But yeah, that never happened. And Spike decided against ordering more episodes of the dub. And even if they did order more, there are only so much you can do with the footage that you've been given. So Spike was more than content to just let it all go after 26 and concentrate more on more MXC episodes. However, they did not necessarily get out of the business of presenting trivia with Fuji Television, because Fuji TV actually helped them produce another TV show with a similar format. Who here remembers Mansers? What is that? It's basically a TV show that presents trivia that would be of importance to Gen X males. That's a big no for me. Yeah. That is a big no. In fact, I got a quote here from Eric Andre. He said, if Maxim Magazine and Crystal Meth had a baby, it would give anal birth to the show Mansers. The show is basically just about boobs and farts. It lasted... Four years. Jeez. And meanwhile, this only lasted the one. You figure it out, people. It was really interesting. I mean, the format was really well done. The trivia itself was interesting. And if you're not careful, you may learn a thing or two. Unfortunately, 
All that's left of this show are the two episodes that are available on YouTube and the two episodes that are available on the Internet Archive. And yes, we checked. They are the same two episodes. But you guys want to know what I found? What did you find? It's time for eBay prices, right, people? Jeez. All right, what do you have for us? It is your very own Hey Button. And it's basically just like the Hey Button you used on the show. You hit it, and you can register up to 20 Hey's. Oh, now that's cool. That is cool, isn't it? Yeah. I have a used price here. There is a delivery charge. I am not including the delivery charge. This is from eBay user Select Anime, and you're just bidding on the button. Greg, why don't you go first? 20 bucks. 20 bucks for Greg. Mike? That was going to be what I was going to spend. Happy New Year, Greg. $21. By the way, the hey button was made by Bandai. Oh, wow. Bandai. Oh, nice. Nice. And it's being shipped from overseas. That being said, do you want to reprise your bid? Yes. This is eBay prices right using Bill Cullen rules, people. Oh, this is a first. We're going to do eBay prices right with Bill Cullen rules. Yes. So right now. The top bid is $21. Greg, do you want to change your bid? I'm going to change my bid to $25. Mike, the top bid is $25. Would you like to change your bid? You are on $21. $28. Greg? $32. $32 is the bid from Greg. Mike? $39. $39 from Mike. Greg, do you want to change your bid or do you want to freeze at $32? i am going to freeze. You're going to freeze at 32. Greg has $32. Mike has $39. I have the actual buy it now price. All I have to say is I hope you saved your pennies. $167.40. No! 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 I did say it was being shipped from overseas. Okay, Chico sent me the link to the actual auction. That actually is very cool. Is that $167 cool? No. But that's pretty cool. Ain't it, though? You know, if it was like $40, like I bid, I would definitely buy that. And if you don't want to spend the money and are a reverse engineering sort, you could buy a cheap Britain's Got Talent buzzer or a cheap sort of buzz buzzer rig it to uh deliver 20 haze if you are of an engineering sort there's gotta be places that sell that for cheaper i know it's all overseas 
And also, yeah, I know the show hasn't been around for, what, probably 15, 16, 17 years at this point? 17 years, yes. Yeah, so it's not like you can just go to a store and buy it. But that is, like, really, really cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Really cool, but really, really expensive. All I could say is, I hope you find a buyer for that. But... Hey! <laughs> See what I did there? Row! End. Episode 339. Submission number 809. Scorch. Scorch aired on the CBS television network from February 28th to March 13th, 1992 for six episodes, three of which went unaired. When you wake up with a fire in your belly And your breath feels charred when you yawn and your cave is covered in cobwebs And suddenly a hundred years are gone When it seems as if your surroundings Have all been tossed and twirled Remember things happen at the right time And you got all the time in the world Oh yes When you fly around in a tizzy And your wings are pumping stale air And you know something weird is happening Cause everything is different everywhere When you can't find a knight or a dragon And there's nowhere to get your horn curled Remember things happen at the right time And you got all the time in the world Yes, you got all the time in the world What could you say about family entertainment in the early 1990s? A dragon had a TV show. Not just any dragon, mind you. A 1,300-year-old dragon who lived through the Middle Ages and for some reason managed to find their way into the present day. Wow, a 1,300-year-old dragon lived through all this crap and now he's living in 1992 modern times. Scorch, a small 1,300-year-old dragon, awakens from a 100-year-old sleep in 1992. While flying around, he is struck by lightning, and he crash lands in front of the apartment of Brian Stevens and his daughter, Jessica. The next day, as a result of awkward circumstances, Brian lands a job as a TV weatherman at New Haven, Connecticut television station WWEN by pretending that he's a ventriloquist and scorches his puppet. The kicker? Nobody except Brian and Jessica know the truth. That not only is Scorch an actual dragon, but he can actually breathe fire. What? Well, he's a dragon. Wouldn't that go with the territory? Oh, that's right. But the problem is, okay... This dragon is not what we think of as, like, a dragon dragon. He'd be a baby dragon. A baby dragon. So he's not like Dragon Dragon from Shikara. Dragon Dragon! 
And it's a huge dragon! Ladies and gentlemen, we have had a monk, a skunk, uh, a bear, a lion, I believe, a box, a guy named Xavier, and now a dragon dragon! So, to review, he is not Dragon Dragon, he's not any of the dragons from the Game of Thrones series, and he is not the Dragon Zord, so... He is just this tiny dragon, about the size of uh, size of my midsection, I guess you could say. Wait, are you also saying he's not the Rappin' Dragon? He's not the Rappin' Dragon either, Mike. Well, it'd be time-relevant. Yeah. Early 90s. Oh, well, yeah. But this isn't the first time we've ever seen Scorch, mind you. Because Scorch was the creation of one Ron Lucas. Of course, Ron Lucas is a stand-up comedian and ventriloquist in his own right. He began his career in El Paso, Texas. At 21, he began touring the country as he was hired by the Billy the Kid clothing company. They hired him to tour the country with a Billy the Kid puppet. But it reinforced his dream of being in show business, so he decided to experiment with a whole lot of puppets. I believe one of his puppets was like an old man puppet, if I'm not mistaken. By the way, aside from being a comedian and a puppeteer, you have seen Lucas in such shows like Super Dave, Night Court, L.A. Law, Nip Tuck, and um, <clears throat> Silk Stockings. Did the puppet play the man meat that week? <laughs> I, knew Boy! Gonna, I knew you were going to ask. The answer is no. <laughs> oh, darn. Well, also, I think we need to add, I think where he got his biggest exposure, he was a semi-regular on Match Game in 1990. Yeah, that was some time after he won the uh, Showtime Lap-Off competition. By the time Scorch came around, Ron Lucas was a known commodity. A known entity, if you will. But interestingly enough, he never appeared on this show. Although he did voice Scorch, so there's something. So, who played the straight man to Scorch's jokes? Well, in all six episodes, there are only six people, including Ron Lucas, who does the voice of Scorch, obviously. Playing the role of Brian Stevens, the weather person, is Jonathan Walker, who is best known as... Oh, gosh. He played Senator Cherry in the Daredevil series. So there is a Marvel Cinematic Universe connection there. Will he be on Daredevil Born Again? Probably not. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. At this point, Mike sends a link to Greg and Chico to an article from Boys Life magazine. It's just a little, uh, like, how to be a ventriloquist. But also, I added it because, Greg, if you go to the next page, there's an ad for the PlayStation Vita. Oh, that's terrific. That's wonderful. That's for the PlayStation Vita next to an interview with Ron Lucas. Oh, no, it's not an ad. I'm sorry. It's an article. And they uh, the the first thing it mentions, it's about video games. And the first thing they talk about is the Vita. Racers. 
Just, oh, you're so, looking at it. Okay. Yeah. So I guess what you're trying to say is it is an advertisement disguised as an actual article. Hey, when my brother had a subscription to Boys Life magazine when he was like nine, I remember like one of the ads in it was like this big full page ad. Remember the Tengen NES games? I do remember the Tengen NES oh, yeah. games. Oh, yeah. I looked at that ad and I just stared at the black cartridges. And I was like, how in the world did they make these NES cartridges look like that? And then it turned out that Tengen made them illegally to get around the Nintendo lockout system. Yes. Gaming Historian has a whole rap about that, and it's actually pretty good. I'm going to add two more things about Boys Life since I was in the Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts back in the day. Uh-huh. One, my favorite issue ever, and I don't have it anymore, unfortunately, was when they profiled Dwight Gooden. So this would have been probably about 85, 86. Oh, yeah. But also oh. Greg's. Yeah. We talked about the Spider-Man game for the Atari 2600. Yes. That's where I first saw it, and I said, I want that video game. Oh, well. And then 30 years later, I lived to regret it. <laughs> oh, by the way, I haven't mentioned this yet, but do you know I met Doc Gooden again for like the third or fourth time like two weeks ago? Was really? that when you got all the uh, the, the signing? Oh, yeah, because okay, I didn't mention this here on the podcast. But, okay, Dwight Gooden, Mookie Wilson, Howard Johnson, Bobby Ojeda, and Wally Backman were all doing a signing at the Hicksville Mall. And I went to that signing. And the reason I went to that signing is my brother is a big fan of 87 Tops. So I got, like, five 87 top scores and I had them all sign them. And also, as a bonus, I got, like, a photo op of all five of them. So I love the 87 Tops. Oh, the wood grain. Candy. Wood grain. Now with you the see, I don't like the, the bottom. Nice. I don't like the wood grain. I'm sorry, I don't like that. Even though they did a really good job this year, because some of the inserts in 2022 tops were retros back to 1987. You had current players yeah. on the 1987 design. No, I, I'm not a fan of the 1987 design. I'm sorry to say I, that. I did get a cool 87 tops retro Max Scherzer refractor recently. Oh, very nice. Even though very I don't. Oh, collect, good for you. Even though I don't collect refractors, but yeah, I shook Doc's hand. Uh, it was a time in my life two weeks ago. But okay, we're not here to talk about Tengen NES cartridges. We're not here to talk about Dwight Good. We're not here to talk about Spider-Man on the Atari 2600. We're here to talk about Scorch. Playing his daughter Jessica, that is Brian's daughter Jessica, is Ray Silver Smith who is a That Child actor from That Thing from 91 to 96. She doesn't do much acting anymore. Playing Allison King is Brenda Strong, who is best known as Mary Alice Young on Desperate Housewives. I believe we have talked about her in the past on this show. Yeah, well, you can bring up Desperate Housewives, but to me, she'll always be Sue Ellen Mischke, the Broilless Wonder on Seinfeld. And by the way, guys, she was in an episode of Silk Stockings. Was she a Broilless Wonder on that? Gosh, we can only hope so, maybe? Well, she played a character named Candy Grayson on Silk Stockings, so use your imagination. Candy Grayson. Yeah. Mmm. 
but yes, she was also, oh, there you go. She was a Miss Speedway in previous entry, Misfits of Science. Oh, she was also on four episodes of Twin Peaks. That's right. She played the assistant to David Warner's character in Twin Peaks. That's right. David Warner and Brenda Strong shared the same screen. Can you imagine that? I can't unimagine it. Next, playing the role of Jack Fletcher is Todd Sussman, who was just in a whole lot of things. Uh, we're talking about a 2009 version of Taking of Pelham 123, Blast from the Past from 99, Beverly Hills Cop 2 from 87, Coneheads. He was in Coneheads. He was in an episode of Punky Brewster in 1987. Ooh, which one? Which one? Oh. Beer and buffaloes don't mix. Oh, I think I know what episode this is, Chico. This Go is on. the episode where he played like a drunk dad. This was like this very special episode dealing with alcoholism, if I recall correctly. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Sadly, the very special episode on uh, YouTube did not last that long. I know. Sad. But we did get the episode of Punky Brewster about the Challenger explosion. Where uh, Alan thought that they'd be rescued by Mr. T. Alan, why? Again. We also did talk about Todd Sussman previously because he was on an episode of Here's Boomer. He was on an episode of Here's Boomer. Oh, and he was also on an episode of Boys Will Be Boys slash Second Chance. And he was a regular on Future Entry, Star of the Family. Which was his gig right after Here's Boomer. And rounding out the cast as the anchor person, Howard Gurman, is John O'Hurley, who is known for hosting To Tell the Truth and Family Feud and nothing else. Okay, fine, he was Jacobo Peterman on Seinfeld. Mike actually met John O'Hurley once upon a time. 16 years ago. Yeah. You want to know how long ago it was? It was at a Borders Books. That's a long time. Was it a Borders Books? Why do you know this, Greg? Because it says on the picture, Borders Books. Why are you stalking me during the show? Come on. No, I remember this. It's been burned into my memory for 16 years. You remember it, but I don't. That's kind of scary. Okay, but do you want me to mention this episode of Seinfeld I recently saw today with John O'Hurley? Go on. Okay. Of course. It's the episode, The Secret Code. Okay, in this episode, George doesn't want to tell his fiance Susan about his secret ATM code. And through circumstances, George is with Peterman as his mother is near death. So while he's away, George secretly tells his dead mother, just between you and me, and I know you're probably not going to hear this, my ATM code is Bosco. And then she wakes up, and Peterman's in the room like, Mother, what are you going to say? You want to know what it is? <laughs> It's Bosco. <laughs> you know, the, the chocolate syrup. I, I love that stuff. I pour it in milk. It's my favorite drink. <laughs> uh, 
boy, that is a relief. Bosco. Bosco. Mama? Quiet, quiet, it's a secret. Bosco! Bosco! What are you trying to say? Bosco. She's gone. And her last word is Bosco. And he's like, Bosco? And for the record, Bosco is for the drink, not the Looney Tunes character. I remember that drink. Vaguely, but I remember it. Oh, wait. Do you know who also was in that episode of Seinfeld, guys? I'm looking at the guest cast list. Louis Arquette. He played Leapin' Larry. The appliance store owner who walks with a prosthetic leg. Okay, I remember that. I remember that. So yeah, those are your castmates. They share the screen with a dragon. But everybody thinks he's a puppet. Except for Brian and Jessica, who know... The truth behind Scorch. Well, kayfabe-wise to everybody, he's a puppet. Shoot-wise, he's a real dragon. Yes. Shoot-wise, he's a real dragon. So he's basically a puppet pretending to be a dragon pretending to be a puppet. Or is it a dragon pretending to be a puppet pretending to be a dragon? This, this is an elf situation we're dealing with here. Everybody knows he's a puppet, but he's to be treated as a real dragon. Partly because, like we said before, he breathes fire. So, what kind of trouble can a dragon from the Middle Ages get into in 1992 Connecticut? Shall we? We begin, as we always do, with the pilot. Scorch oversleeps and wakes up in current America. He befriends with actor Brian and his daughter Jessica. Scorch convinces him to take him to the job interview, too. They're hired as weathermen slash ventriloquist and dummy. I'm sorry, this is so stupid. They get hired as a weatherman slash ventriloquist and dummy. Are they going to do the weather together? Yes. Hey, what's the yeah. weather today in New Haven? No, I... No. Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. And that is exactly why they're hired. Because it's ridiculous. Have you ever seen on the news the Weber man with a ventriloquist dummy? Have you ever seen that ever? No, I haven't. Maybe they thought, well, this is going to be a first. We're going to have a Weber man with a ventriloquist dummy. We're going to start a new trend in television. And we wonder why this lasted three episodes. <laughs> The first thing that came to mind is I could see, like, Sports Center doing this. Well, just to bring up ratings. Oh, look, here's our new anchor, Scott Van Pelt, and his puppet, Felty, or something like that. No, you know Kenny Maine would have had a puppet. <laughs> no, Kenny Maine would have had a puppet who is more animated than he would be. Hey, Scott Van Pelt. Look at LeBron James. He has such a cavalier attitude on the court. Ha 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 ha. 
doesn't work in the sports no. center. I'm sorry. No. Ed meet ego. Anyway, we have a big name on this episode. Really big name. Playing the role of Mrs. Edna Bracken. Rosemary. From the frickin' Hollywood Squares, y'all. Have we talked about Rosemary in the past? I, I honestly don't know if we have. Unless we talked about her in the Hollywood Squares finale, but she wouldn't have been on that, I don't think. I don't think we mentioned her. Outside of, like, the year in review when we did an in-memoriam about her. So this is probably the first time proper. Except she was dead in 2017, and this podcast only goes as far back as 2018? 2019. 2019. Yeah. 2019. We, we started October 2019. Jeez. This is how I long we've bills. been. I know when this started. This is how long we've been doing this. I thought we covered it in, in memoriam. Oh, wait. Hold on. See, this is what we get for the first time we mentioned Rosemary. She was on an episode of Wings. What? Woo! 1997, so it looks like it might be last season. Uh, oh, this is actually last season, one of the last episodes. Heartache Tonight. Heartache Tonight. Brian and Casey are ill. Joe and Helen visit Roy's house and meet Roy's mother, Eleanor. Oh, so she played Roy's mother. She's Roy's mom, yes. So do you think Roy talked to his mother about the time he destroyed poor Lowell's blimp? Oh, poor Lowell's blimp. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Okay, guys, I want to preface this, but you guys know that I'm a big fan of Ultraman, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. She was in an episode of Ultraman, the Ultimate Hero, the only Ultraman series that is taped in the U.S. There's no such thing as a fun fact. And you know who else was in that series? Aside from Kane Kasugi, the, uh, Son of Shokasugi. Who? Harrison Page of Super Train. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Harrison Page of Super Train. It always comes back to the Super Train. Damn right it do. <laughs> but yeah, suffice it to say, Rosemary's been in everything and we love her. Episode two, Dragon Blue. Brian and Scorch are supposed to give an award. The award is for Man of the Year to their boss. Shortly before that event, however, Scorch gets the Dragon Blue, which includes various negative side effects that would make for a very bad and a very embarrassing speech. The Dragon Blue. Yeah, symptoms include amnesia, unconsciousness, coughing, swearing, and barking. Coughing, swearing, and barking. Okay. I I'm checking out. Thank you. <laughs> How did this show not get five seasons? I don't... Oh, we will get to that. I have an idea. But we will get to that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, my good goodness gracious. Of all the dramatic things I've ever seen... I don't think since Mr. Bogus we've had an episode as great as this. Playing the role of the boss is an actor by the name of I.M. Hobson, who uh, sadly is no longer with us. He died in 2003. But he was in 1992's Dracula, 1982's Annie, and 
he was a businessman on an episode of Seinfeld. Oh, that's great. More Seinfeld connections. Hey, guys. What? Let me guess. Hold on a second, Mike. Take a guess. Take a guess. Take a guess. Was he on an episode of Silk Stockings? No, no, no. This has nothing to do with him. Oh, good. This episode is on YouTube. Oh, that's fantastic. So, you know, if you're still hungover, like, seven days after New Year's and need something to tide you over, it's in two installments, two parts on YouTube. It was uploaded 11 years ago. Oh, my gosh. 11 years ago. Well, you know what? Whoever uploaded this 11 years ago, we thank you. Thank you, Beast Over. Oh, by the way, now, you probably don't recognize the name I am Hobson, but remember the Blind Dates episode from Season 2 of Saved by the Bell? By the way, there was an episode of uh, Zach Morris's Trash on that episode. He was the teacher du jour. Oh, okay. Dominant genes! And recessive genes, not to be confused with blue genes. <laughs> Enough humor. Episode three, you gaslight up my life. Oh, dear. Scorch is on the title page of a magazine. Everyone is surprised, but happy, except for Howard. He thinks he should have been on the page. So he decides to kidnap Scorch. Uh-oh. 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 Susan, I can't believe it either. Why would anyone want to kidnap poor Scorch? And I think this is the last episode that aired. That means he's going to have to remain motionless <laughs> while dealing with Howard. <laughs> How is he going to communicate with anybody? How is anybody going to know where he is? Wait a minute. He's a shoot dragon, right? He's a shoot dragon. Okay, so he probably could escape and go to a payphone and make a call. Probably. But then what would happen if someone saw him? Like walk to the payphone. Then we'd have a problem. Or fly to the payphone. Then, of course, we'd have a whole serious situation here. With a living dragon. Hey, isn't that the puppet from television? Hey, guys. Yeah. Beast Over uploaded this episode, too. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> Doing yeoman's work, this person. He's got actually all three episodes. Oh, he still all three. Taped all three. He taped all three. Oh, I know what I'm doing after New Year's Eve. <laughs> We're going to watch these episodes. We're going to watch all the episodes of Scorch that were aired after we're done binge watching all the Mr. Focus episodes. <laughs> I, I want to hear Scorch give that speech loaded with profanities. Oh, my gosh. I'm with Greg. This should have aired at least five seasons. This should have been as big as L. You're right. You've come around on this. How did this show last three episodes on the air? This is crap. Well, like Chico said, there's reasons. We'll get to them later, I'm sure. 
Okay. Now, I thought this was going to be the weakest of the three. This is best of the three. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm like in... This in is going to be here. top ten. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to make our top ten countdown when we get to episode 400. Just watch. The top ten between 200 and 400, yes. Yeah. I guarantee this episode, as of right now, is the best episode we've done in 2023. <laughs> or for 2023, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Might be second place in an hour, but this is not my <laughs> right now. We'll see. We'll yeah, 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 yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, hold on. There's still three episodes to go. We might have gold here. Yeah, because remember, this only aired three episodes here in the U.S., I don't know if the rest of the run aired elsewhere, but we have capsules for all six episodes. Well, before we do that, we have to take this quick commercial break first. After these messages, we'll be right back. When a killer gives L.A. surfers their final ride, Tequila and Bonetti discover their only lead is a psychic. Her dream came true. Early in California. Will her visions lead to the murderer? To where this killing happened. She's dead! Or is it part of a deadly trap? Ah! Catch Tequila and Bonetti, Friday at 9. Tonight on CBS Late Night, Dangerous Curves. I get that right? Perfect. perfect. Back in five, Stephanie. When you're trying to eat right, days like this are a disaster. This is. Stephanie Powers talks about Kellogg's Nutrigrain. The only time I really control what I eat is at breakfast. And the whole grain in Kellogg's Nutrigrain gives me a natural start. No sugar added, no preservatives, nothing fake. No matter what I eat later, at breakfast I call the shot. Naturally good. Nutri-Grain, the natural place to start. Bring it all home. Bring it home. Action now at Action, take two great items for one low weekly price. Get this 19-inch TV plus a two-head VCR. Choose this luxurious sofa and love seat. Enjoy this stereo system and a CD player. Select this washer and dryer. Pick any one of these three great TV combinations. Now at Action Rent to Own, take two great items for one low weekly price. Bring it all home. Bring it home. Action Rent to Own. Friday, a cop is shot. Your unit is called to save him. Then you find it's your own husband. I never expected anything like that to happen. A special rescue 911. It's madness. that did not air in the U.S. Starting with this one. The first time. Scorch is in search for a girlfriend for Brian. He invites the new neighbor in the house, Lisa, for a meal. Old dragon that he is, he is not all too familiar with the current table manners of the 20th century. Unfortunately, we do not have the person who plays Lisa on this show. Hey, didn't air in the U.S. What do you want, huh? Hey, I'm just glad it was called the first time. I'm glad they're worried about table manners, because when I saw the first time, it's like, 
Boing! Oh, God! <laughs> well, that's what I thought it was going to be about. It's 1992. People are a little more open-minded. Who cares about table manners? It's more bed manners that I thought were going to be important. Yeah, first date, you never know. True, true. If this was 2023, Scorch would probably be trying to get a date on, like, a dating app. Well, he breathes fire tinder. No. <laughs> Episode, uh, hey, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Episode five. Scorch likes it hot. Oh yeah, Scorch <laughs> likes it hot. We started with the first time. Now yeah. apparently he likes it hot. Yeah, th- this should have been the second part of a two-part episode with the first time. This should have been a crossover with silk stockings. <laughs> So, a psychologist wants to help the TV network and suggests getting a female puppet for Scorch. In the end, they decide to dress up Scorch like a girl. (laughs) Get it? Because some like it hot. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Scorch and drag. (laughs) Why did this not go more than three episodes? Like, this was 16 years before RuPaul's Drag Race. Scorch was a progressive TV show. By the way, the psychologist, of course, Dr. Joyce Brothers. Oh, of course. Because, of course. This was before being known for being known was a thing. But, you know, some people best know Dr. Joyce Brothers for the $64,000 question. I'm sorry. When I think of Dr. Joyce Brothers, I think of the baseball announcer scene from The Naked Gun. Thank you so much. And Dr. Joyce Brothers. And the final episode... Money, money, money! Scorch discovers the home shopping channel. He buys things on TV with Brian's credit card worth $1,160 US. When it turns out that he actually maxes out the credit card, Scorch tries to make some of Brian's money back by inviting everyone from the station to a poker game. Why did this only last three shows? If this was set like later in the 90s, it would revolve around, and as we're recording this, R.I.P. Don West. You could have had an episode revolve around Scorch trying to buy all the Mark McGuire rookie cards on the Shop at Home Network. He could have bought all the junk wax uh, cards from that time. Ooh, a Frank Thomas 1990 Tops rookie. Those are rare. They're not rare. Hold on a second. You mentioned Frank Thomas, so... Oh, no. No, why did I... No, no. I should have gone with somebody else. Why did I do this? What the hell is that? That's eugenics. Okay, I, I'd like to retract the name Frank Thomas and put in Ken Griffey Jr. But what if it's the Upper Deck 89 rookie? Don't put in all these variables, okay? <laughs> okay, in that case, we're going to change it. It's not a Frank Thomas tops rookie card it's his leaf rookie card the one card of his from that time that has value are we getting too geeky on sports cards now just geeky enough 
Well, you know, there's one other thing he could have bought from the Home Shopping Channel besides junk wax era baseball cards. Capitamonte sculptures. And cubic zirconium. Normally we'd ask where the show went wrong, but I think it's pretty obvious, but I'll go into it. Obviously, I have to go into it, because first thing we had to do is look at the schedule, right? Scorch aired Fridays at 8 on CBS. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. I think we both do, yeah. Urkel. Urkel, Matlock, and John Walsh. Ooh. Jeez. Suffice it to say, it did not stand a chance. And frankly, if it was on a night, because CBS completely reprogrammed Friday night, mid-season 1992, they had four new shows. One of which we're covering right now. Another one of which we're going to cover later this year. I'm not going to say when, but later this year. Because at 8 o'clock was Scorch, followed by Fish Police, then Tequila and Benetti, and they rounded out the night with Hearts Are Wild. What in God's... Oh my gosh. What in God's name is Hearts Are Wild? I have no freaking clue. Let me just take a look from uh, TV Tango here. Apparently, an anthology series. Well, it's not on the list, so I might as well type it in now. Might as well. It's an anthology series that takes place at Caesar's Palace. Oh, it's Caesar's Palace. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of sort of sounds like love boatish, fantasy islandish, but it happens at a Las Vegas casino. So it's basically hotel if it were in Vegas. It's too bad this didn't last another year, guys, because then they could have had a special episode with the Jeez. WWF at WrestleMania 9. Say, Greg, just get out of your and, system. And we could have had a cameo from Giant Gonzalez. I'm just going to let Greg talk. I'm just going to let him talk. Now, wait a second. I wasn't expecting Giant Gonzalez. I was expecting a Caesars Challenge reference. Well, wait a minute. Wouldn't it have been great if episode <laughs> challenge there was a cameo from giant gonzalez and giant gonzalez was doing the getting all the balls from the bonus game and he was reciting all the letters like e i want the l i want your l <laughs> boy guys multiple references to giant gonzalez this week what the heck is going on Oh, and I should add, take a look at IMDb about uh, Hearts Are Wild, Greg. Oh my gosh, we're pulling out all the hits right now. Diana Maldar was on an episode. Play it, we haven't played it in a while. I really didn't want to talk about it. Ah! Oh, oh my god! <laughs> oh, Diana, stop going down that elevator shaft. I just want to say one thing. You probably know what I'm about to say here. Damn it. Another Pulaski episode. Well, hold on. While we were in that tangent here, we forgot to mention the big part of the schedule. What should have been the main anchor of that schedule. Tequila and Bonetti. 
right? And for the two shows that aired in that same time frame, two weeks apart, it didn't do any better. March 20th, though, CBS obviously took a break from airing Scorch to air March Madness. It didn't do worse, but it didn't do better. But then again, it's March Madness. You kind of sort of have to do it. But when CBS went back to regularly scheduled programs in April, Scorch was nowhere to be found. Of course, this being really close to sweeps, you probably don't want to take any chances. So CBS rejiggered the lineup again. And hey, they actually put Tequila and Benetti on at 8 o'clock. They couldn't even burn the last three episodes during the summer. No, they could not. You would have thought it would be a good idea, but then again, this is why... We don't get paid the big bucks that people at CBS do. Unfortunately, the six episodes of Scorch did not see an official home video release anywhere that our research could tell. But the episodes that did air in the U.S. are available unofficially on YouTube. But you didn't hear it from us. I mentioned it earlier in the show. What are you talking about? <laughs> Don't weep for Ron Lucas. He's had a very fruitful career before this, and he has had a very fruitful career since. In fact, he wrote the book on how to be a ventriloquist. Better living through ventriloquism, how to say what you shouldn't and get what you want. That is indeed the title of the book. And he actually appeared on stage with a finalist from Britain's Got Talent. So, yeah. By the way, the finalist in question was Paul Zerden, who actually ended up winning the 2015 season of America's Got Talent. And turns out that he may or may not have stolen an axe from Ron Lucas himself. Wait, this was Britain's Got Talent, right? Well, he was on Britain's Got Talent and America's Got Talent. Okay. Because apparently people like doing that. They like to appear on Britain's Got Talent or whatever Got Talent and then parlay that into America's Got Talent. Because apparently America has run out of talent. So what else is there to say? I mean, six episodes, half of them didn't even make air. Ron Lucas still had a career. John O'Hurley still has a career. Brenda Strong still has a career. Jonathan Walker still has a career. Todd Sussman is making bank doing production work. Ray Silversmith, I'm sure she's happy where she is. And Scorch, well, Scorch is a dragon. Who is a puppet. Who is also a dragon. I'm just going to say it. This show should have gotten at least five years. It should have been on the air at least longer than Elf. We could have a Scorch channel right now on Pluto. Viewers of 1992, I'm so ashamed of you. 
the Scorch channel on Pluto TV. Oh my gosh. Instead, we have the Matlock channel on Pluto TV, and we have this thing on TV. And also, Urkel is somewhere involved, too, so who knows. Now, wait a second. Why are you picking on Matlock? Because it was on the same time as Scourge, dude. Okay, but, you know, because of Matlock, we got to see Twyla Littleton as the laundry store customer on that 1989 episode of Matlock. I'm just saying. Hold on. I have a great idea for an episode of Scourge, okay? You ready? Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here we go. Here it comes. Here we go. Scorch runs up with Sherman Helmsley and involves them both going to the Boom Boom Room. (laughs) Say no more. Say no more. That would have gotten at least six years. There's your season six episode. (laughs) And your crossover episode. Because now Scorch enters. The Perfect Strangers universe. Oh, yeah, the entire Miller Boyette universe. Oh, jeez. I don't think we have anything else to say except, you know where our website is. It was a thing on TV.com. On all social media, we're at It Was a Thing on TV. Except, you know, when Scorch had that uh, dragon flu, he coughed up a podcast. Uh, at the end of the name for Facebook. So you have to go to, it was the thing on TV podcast, that nasty dragon flu. He may have and swore course, to Mark Zuckerberg too, so. Well, who hasn't? <laughs> but also, don't forget, we're on YouTube. Visit our channel. Listen to previous episodes there. Don't forget, like and subscribe, and you'll be hooked up with uh, all the recent uploads there. Next week. Oh, my. I don't think we can top this next week. We may try, but I don't think we're going to. Our first episode is going to be sort of a parallel to a TV show that is premiering and long-awaited, eagerly awaited premiere of 2023. I know Mike's looking forward to it. but Optimistically, what? yes. Yeah. Uh, this is basically the Night Court before Night Court. And it's sort of a pseudo viewer request because I saw it on somebody's page and it was like, okay, you know what? We've got to do some research on this and put it on the schedule. Special shout out to Adam Nita. But then the next episode, because your boy is celebrating a birthday and Because your boy is celebrating a birthday, he is playing his money in the bank. Oh, but in the immortal words of Team Rocket, prepare for trouble and make it double. Wait, so you mean for this birthday, you're not going to go see Maury? No. Chicken (laughs) Tetrazzini! Too soon! Thing on TV. Thanks for listening. 
for Greg, for Mike, hum Chico, please be kind to each other and, <laughs> and give Chico some oxygen for heaven's sake. <laughs> bye. Wow. Gorgeous, Ron. This is the right question. Can I terrify you now? Oh, you want to do yeah, it now? Yeah, now. All right. Okay, Ron. Here we go. Help me out. Okay, oh, put scorch. on your put no, on your what costume. Scorch. What are you doing? Oh no! Oh, oh, that is frightening. Oh my! Oh! Ah! 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 <laughs> now, Scorch. Yeah. That is you under there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's me. It's kind of hard to hide the teeth, but it's me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was an incredible transformation. Yeah. You, you get what I am? No, what are... Well, I, the you, most terrifying thing I could think of. I'm a game show host. Oh. <laughs> Not you, Ross. Chuck Woolery, yes. Oh, I see. 